Now, we're wrapping up our series this weekend, Life As We Know It. And just like we just heard from Bob, one of the things we've learned in this series is that everybody has a story. And it's been so cool how many, so many of you during this series, you've gotten involved in a small group. And I'm hearing incredible reports and feedback as you're opening up your lives and you're sharing your story. In fact, I heard this week that one of our teachers here uh, that teaches in the schools ordered 100 copies because she's going to do this with her students at school to get them to open up about their life and begin to share their story. But we all have a story. And another thing we've learned is a story is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Now, here's the problem. If we're not careful, uh, we can fall into the trap of thinking that life is all about our story. And that problem is, is when that happens, we kind of become the center of our own little universe and the world begins to revolve around us. Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you know someone who believes the, the, the world just revolves around them? Just raise your hand. How many of you live with someone, you know? How many of you are that someone that, you know, just thinks, right, right? Uh, this is what helps me. It's when, it's when I realize that my life really isn't my story. It's, at the end of the day, it's really God's story. It's my job to figure out where I fit in God's story because when you think about it, the reality is this. We're all going to come. We're all going to go. We're all going to die. Uh, James 4.14 says our life is like a vapor. And, and whether it's a 70-year vapor, 80-year vapor, or even a 100-year vapor, he says eventually it's going to fade away. And if you really want to get depressed, think about this. About 50 or 60 years after we die, no one will ever even remember except our grandkids that we ever existed, right? But yet at the same time, the God of heaven who is everlasting to everlasting, uh, the one who existed before time and the one who will exist for all eternity. The one who spoke the world into existence and one day will sit in judgment of it. He remains. So it's his story. From start to finish, at the end of the day, it's all about God. So what does that mean to you and me? A couple of things. First of all, even though it's God's story, we still play a role. I mean, think about it this way. Each one of us, as we sit here this weekend, we represent God's dream come true. Each one of us is a plan on purpose being that God placed on this planet to be a character in his unfolding story. So even though it's God's story, we still play a role. But second, we don't get to choose the role that we play in God's story. Have you noticed that? You didn't get to choose whether you're male or female or married or single. You don't get to choose whether you're famous or not famous, rich or poor. You don't get to choose whether you're white or black or red or yellow. You don't get to choose whether you're born in the great United States of America or you're born in the Congo or say you're born in Haiti. And it's because in this unfolding story, understand God is the writer, God is the producer, God is the casting director. And that means that our number one goal in life is to try to discover the role that God has destined us to play and then to perform that role, play that role to the best of our ability, not for our glory, but for God's glory. Now this weekend as we wrap up our series, we've been looking and tracking with the life of David. I want you to see the role that David played in God's unfolding story and I want you to see how it impacted our future. But not only that, I want you to see how the role that David plays impacts your future. So if you have your Bible this weekend, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start there, and it's kind of odd because Matthew's getting ready to tell the Christmas story. And if it were up to me, I would do Christmas messages 11 months out of the year, and then we would celebrate Thanksgiving for one month. Probably not Halloween at all. But anyway, that's just me. But uh, we're, going to, we're going to look at a passage that we normally associate with, with, with Christmas. But I want you to see, I want to start here because I want you to see how closely it relates to David. When Matthew writes Matthew chapter 1, he goes all the way back into Jesus' past, his family tree, his genealogy. And he introduces us to Jesus' relatives. And this is what Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. But look at that next phrase, the son of 
David, there's our guy. And you probably have heard that a million times, but you've probably never paused to think about the significance of that little statement. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And later on, when Matthew actually gets around to talking about David in this genealogy, he highlights something interesting about David's life. And what's interesting is that there are a lot of things that he could have said about David. Uh, Matthew could have talked about David the warrior or David the singer or David the songwriter. He could have talked about David the poet. He could have talked about David the great king. But let me show you what he highlights, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez. Someone pointed out to me that that's the first Hispanic in the Bible, right there. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. That's a great name, by the way, Ram, right? Ram the father of Amminadab, not so much. Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Simon, Simon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab the, yeah, don't fill in the blank, you know. Boaz the father of Obed. And I told you, Laura and I just moved to Holly Springs. My one fear about moving to Holly Springs is that Laura was going to get pregnant because there's something about living in Holly Springs, if you've ever been to our Holly Springs campus. Every adult has a child. It's amazing. 50 childs. It's like there's something in the water there. But I told Laura, if, by, you know, if like Abraham and Sarah, she does get pregnant, we're going to name him Obed. <laughs> Obed Lee. You know a name like Obed Lee. You're playing in the NFL. You know what I'm saying? But anyway... <laughs> Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. But notice he doesn't stop there. David, that's our guy, was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In other words, Solomon, his mom, was Bathsheba. Now, I want you to think about the significance of that statement. Because of all the great things that Matthew could have said about David, why would he include, oh yeah, David had a son named Solomon, Bathsheba was his mom. Well, to understand it, again, we have to go all the way back to our story. So let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses on the screen. Maybe you didn't know it, uh, but the story of David began in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And it began when God told the prophet Samuel, we talked about this the first week, that the nation of Israel needed a new king because Saul had disobeyed, he had screwed up. And so Samuel went to Bethlehem because, see, that's where David lived. He went to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. Remember, he had eight sons, and Samuel had them line up. And, and it was there in Bethlehem that, that Samuel pronounced, David, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And David, of course, is just a young teenage boy at that time, but he grows up. Eventually, he does become the king of Israel. Well, one day after he's been a king for a while, David is walking around his beautiful palatial palace and he looks out the window and he thinks, wow, something's really wrong with this picture. And what's wrong with this picture is this. I'm living in this beautiful palace and God is still living in a tent. We talked about that last week, remember? God's presence resided in the Ark of the Covenant, which was a part of the tabernacle. And wherever the tent, their tabernacle went, the Ark of the Covenant went. And God went with them. And David's like, here I am living in this great palace and God is still in a tent. So David begins to make preparations to build God a home, to build him a temple, a permanent palace. And so we pick up the story, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, who's a different prophet, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. 
Look, this is what God says. Somebody last week said I was disrespectful talking about God in the box, moving around and everything. This is what God said. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. So he just verifies what I was saying last week. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all of your enemies before you. By the way, up to this point, David had never lost a battle when he went to war, never. But notice this last phrase. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Earth. Now, let me just ask you a question. Before I even started this weekend, how many of you had heard of King David? Just raise your hand. Yeah, look at that. People all over the world have heard of King David. Did you understand? Did you realize that God predicted that was going to be the case 3,000 years ago? 3,000 years ago, God said, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. 3,000 years ago. And here we are. We all know the name of King David. So let me just say this. If you're here this weekend and you're one of those people who you just don't believe in the Bible, you don't believe it's true, let's just say that is an incredible coincidence, isn't it, right? Verse 11, then the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. In other words, David, you're going to have a long lineage. For generations, people all over the world, they're going to know who you are. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, in other words, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Remember, we looked at that last week. God had promised that to David. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He's the one who will build the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we know looking back that he's referring to Solomon. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, God says to David, listen, if your descendants disobey me, understand I am going to discipline them. And I'm going to discipline by the surrounding nations that are enemies of Israel. I'm going to use them to discipline those guys. Verse 15. But, and this is so key, but... My love will never, notice that word, never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure, here it is, forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, God says, David, when you are one of your descendants, when you disobey me, when you stray, I am going to discipline you guys like crazy. I am going to hold you accountable, but I am not breaking my promise. I promise you, I am going to establish your name forever. David, your name is going to be made great. So that is the promise that God made to David, but that's also David's future. By the way, understand, this is why Jewish people in the first century were expecting a Messiah from the line of David. It's because they knew that God had made an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant with David, and all those first century Jews understood that. But... If you're familiar with the story of David, you know that four chapters later, David, David did everything he possibly could to make God so mad, to make God so angry that he would break his covenant and his promise. 
Because four chapters later, when David should have been away at war with his men, he decided to stay home. And that's when he, Bathsheba caught his eye. And that's when he lusted for her. And that's when he committed adultery with her. And then she became pregnant. And David had her husband killed to cover it all up. And he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And he's walking around the house. And I can guarantee you this is what David was thinking. Because we've all been in these situations in our life. David's thinking at this point, wow. I got away with it. Wow. I dodged a bullet. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So Nathan the prophet shows up at the palace a second time and tells David, hey, David, I got bad news for you. God knows. You can read the story yourself. And David's like, what do you mean God knows? Oh, he knows. He knows everything. He knows about Bathsheba. He knows about the affair. He knows about the baby. He knows about the murder. He knows everything. And when David, when it hit him, what he had done, it tells us that he fell on his knees. He repented. And God said this, David, I am going to forgive you because that's what I do. I'm going to forgive you. But as I promised you, as, you warned, as I warned you, I'm going to discipline you. I got to discipline you. And boy, did he. I listed the consequences of David's sin. The baby that David conceived with Bathsheba, that baby died. Amnon, David's son, rapes his half-sister Tamar. We looked at that last week. Remember then Absalom, who was Tamar's blood brother, kills Amnon. Fourth, Absalom becomes so disgusted that he overthrows his dad, runs David off the throne into exile. And then fifth, David runs from Absalom until his commander, Joab, kills Absalom. It's a great story. You guys really should read the Bible. There's some cool stuff in there. But Absalom... Was, 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 scripture describes him as beautiful with long flowing hair, something like Fabio, right? And, uh, and one day he's riding through the woods and the trees are hanging low and his hair is flowing in the wind and it gets tangled up in the branches and he's hanging there. And Joab comes by, David's commander, and throws three spears right into his heart. And when word starts to spread that Absalom is dead, none of the servants in the palace will even tell David because they know how much David loves Absalom. Absalom is his favorite person on earth. And finally, someone went in to Absalom and says, you gotta know, you gotta know. I went into David and said, you gotta know Absalom is dead. And when David heard that, he just wept and he wept and he cried, oh, Absalom, Absalom, Absalom. If only I would have died in your place. That's a broken man. He is a broken man. Of course he is. He endured the death of a baby, the rape of a daughter, the murder of a son by another son, the rebellion of Absalom, and then he has to endure the death of Absalom. But even though God punished David, and understand it was brutal, his promise remained because, here's our principle, God is a God who keeps his promise in spite of sin. And so 990 years later, a man named Joseph, who was in the line of sinning, adultery committing, murdering King David, took his wife-to-be Mary to the city of Bethlehem. By the way, just so you know, by the first century, this was referred to as the city of David. It wasn't even called Bethlehem anymore. It was the city of David. And they show up in the city of David because Joseph needed to register for the census. And that night, guess what happened? You know, the baby Jesus was born. And he was the great, 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 great grandson of David, the king. 
and the murderer because God keeps his promises. And through the Messiah, just as God said, David's line is established forever. And now maybe you understand why Matthew draws our attention to this huge indiscretion in the life of the man, this is what I want you to see, who is most closely associated with David. I mean, how could he skip over this? How could he just say, hey, Jesse had a son named David and then David had a son named Solomon. It was as if Matthew thought, I have got to draw the attention of my readers to this. Not just that Jesus was related to David. They've got to understand that David, who was related to Jesus, may be the biggest sinner of them all. And yet, in spite of his sin, God kept his promise. And I think the reason that this is so important to Matthew is because he's getting ready to try and convince first century Jewish people that, hey, God does not want you to approach him on the basis of your personal righteousness. God doesn't want you to approach him on the basis of your goodness. I mean, you got to understand in the first century, for the Jewish person, there was Abraham, Father Abraham, and then there was David, and then one day there was going to be the Messiah. That, that was the big three. And so I think David's, or Matthew's message is this, not even the great King David, not even one of the big three could come to God on the basis of his personal righteousness. In fact, as we sit here this weekend, we only know the name King David because of the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And yes, God disciplined him because that's what God does if he loves you. But he did not back off his promise. And I think that David is the perfect example of the fact that God has invited us into a relationship with him. And that relationship, it isn't dependent on our consistency. Our relationship isn't dependent on our goodness or our personal righteousness. It is all about the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Now, that, I told you I was going to tell you how your future ties into David's future. Now, think about this. 1,000 years after Samuel showed up in Bethlehem to announce that David was going to be the next king of Israel, 1,000 years later, the angels show up in Bethlehem to deliver a message to some shepherds who are on the hillside. And the message was that of a future. This is what they said, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. It's familiar. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace. Peace. How about that? Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And I want you to understand the only reason that God could promise us peace is because he was getting ready to remove the biggest obstacle to peace. God was getting ready to remove the guilt and the condemnation of sin. Understand, that is the biggest obstacle to peace in our lives. It's not ISIS. It's not what's going on in Syria. The greatest, the greatest barrier to peace in our life is that sense of guilt and that sense of condemnation that destroys our relationship with God. God was getting ready to invite all people, and this is what the angels are saying. God was getting ready to invite all people to abandon the, hey, I'm trying to earn peace with God system. Have you ever got caught up in that system? I'm trying to earn my peace with God. I think most of us know what that's like. You know, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to give more. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to dig deep and make it happen. I am so going to impress God that he's going to want to be in a relationship with me. God says, bad news is it doesn't work that way. Good news is I have new news for all the people. New news, good news, not just Christian people, not just Jewish people, not just holy people or church people, not just Baptist people, not just Catholic people. I have good news for people who don't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. 
I have good news for people who don't even own a Bible. I have good news for unholy people and inconsistent people because I am offering peace to all men because I am removing the obstacle to peace. I'm going to take care of your sin issue through what my son Jesus is going to do on the cross. Now, that's the gospel. And if you are searching for peace, remember the Old Testament prophet, we look for peace, peace, but there is no peace. Do you feel like that? When you watch CNN and Fox News, you look like, wow, we want peace, but there is no peace. God says the only way to peace is through my son, Jesus Christ. That is the only way you're going to find peace. But I will tell you this, as long as you're trying to earn your peace with God, and you're working your way into a relationship with God, you're never going to find peace. I'll never forget one Saturday I had one of those knocks at the door. Remember those knocks where you open the door and there's somebody hit. I would just like to share something with you. Do you have a few minutes? I always invite those people in. Because I'm thinking this will be fun. <laughs> and so they were sharing their, of course they don't know what I do. So I'm, they, they were sharing their religion and why they do what they do. And I said, I'm really impressed that you guys are out here on a Saturday morning knocking on doors, man. I can't get my people to come to church on Sunday, but you're, you're out knocking on doors. Why do you do that? Well, you know, you got to be good. and You got to do good. If you want to go to heaven one day, you, and I said, oh, that's interesting. So how do you know when you've done enough good? They just stared at me. How do you know when you've worked hard enough or you've been good enough? Or how do you know when you've given enough? How do you know when you serve? So you can just one night go to bed and say, I'm in. I crossed the line. It's all good. And they said, well, you never know that till you die. I'm like, wow. I got a better system. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> and you have never seen someone leave a house so rapidly in your life, right? right? Let me tell you something. As long as you're sitting here trying to negotiate your relationship with God, you will never have peace. I don't care how good you are, how consistent you are. I don't care who you're related to. I don't care how many times you've been to Mass or confession. I don't care how many times you've been baptized. There is no peace with God as long as you are trying to negotiate that peace through your own efforts and your own deeds. Peace with God is only found when we embrace God's promise. And his promise is this. I have forgiven you through the death of my son. And I am inviting you into a relationship with me based on his death. And just as I kept my promise to David, I promise you peace. And not only that, I promise you a future because I promise you eternal life with me through my son, Jesus Christ. And maybe you're just here this weekend because somebody promised to take you to IHOP if you just go to church on a Sunday morning, right? Maybe that's the only reason you're here. And you're thinking, Mike, yeah, wow, you don't know me, Mike, but you don't know how bad I am and you don't know what all I've done. And my response would be, well, you, you now know the story of David. I doubt you've been worse than him. And David's one of the big three, Abraham, David, Jesus. He's the, he's the one most closely associated with Jesus, but not even he could get into a relationship with God based on what he had done or who he was. He still needed the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. And I think that that's why when David, when Matthew got to David, he couldn't just keep going. He couldn't in the genealogy just talk about all the great things that David had done, that how he expanded the borders of Israel, 
how he made it one of the wealthiest nations on earth, how he never lost a battle, how he wrote all of these psalms. He couldn't do that because David was the perfect example of a sinner in need of a savior. He was a perfect example of a sinner in need of forgiveness. He was the perfect example of someone who had disobeyed God ridiculously, but yet still experienced the faithfulness of God. And what I want you to hear is this, as God has done for David, God has done for all of us if we are willing to receive the free gift of salvation made possible through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, let me just tell you something. At the end of the day, that is really the only control you have over your future. Have you thought about that? I mean, think about it. You can be sitting here this weekend married. There are people sitting around you who could tell you that could change tomorrow. There are some of you sitting here, and you're wealthy by the world's standard. I mean, you've got the world by the tail when it comes to finances. But there are people sitting around you right now who could tell you that could change tomorrow. Some of you are healthy. You're like, you got your health, you got everything. I'm telling you, there are people sitting around you right now who could tell you that could change tomorrow. You have no control over that. You're alive. I'll be gathered with a family tomorrow beside a grave. Good friends who could tell you that could all change tomorrow. Listen, if you've watched the news since Friday, you know you don't have any guarantee of anything. You can walk into a theater, a concert, a McDonald's, a sporting event. One day it'll be a church. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. You have no control over the future. But think about this. As you sit here this weekend, you get to decide, you get to choose how you're going to spend your future. You've got two options. There's only two because you are going to die. I guarantee you that statistics are pretty good. One out of one people die. <laughs> and the big question is what's next? And I'm going to do a series on this in January and February. What is next? What do the end times look like? What can we expect? But one of the questions is this. Is there a hell? Second, would a loving God send someone there? And I want to tell you, I'll give you a little a sneak preview. Oh, there is a hell. If you believe in heaven, you have to believe in hell. Because every time Jesus talked about heaven, he spoke about hell about 25 times. So the question is, would a loving God send someone there? And the answer to that question is no. A loving God would not send someone to hell. You choose to go to hell. God has done everything he possibly can to keep you from going there. So if you go there, it's because you choose to go there. And the way you choose to go there is by choosing not to be in a relationship with God and accepting that free gift of salvation so that you're guaranteed a place called heaven with God when you die. Pretty simple. Doesn't matter what you've done. Remember the thief on the cross? Hey, Jesus, remember me later on today, would you? When you get to paradise? And Jesus says, well, you know what? We got to get you baptized. No, he didn't say that, did he? Well, we got to get you to confession. You got to take communion. Nope, didn't say that. What did he say? You believing in me? You putting all your stock in me? I'll see you on the other side, right? It doesn't matter what you've done. It's matter what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Understand, you get to choose life now. You get to choose purpose now now you get to choose peace now regardless of your past you get to determine your future and if something about this sounds too good to be true then you understand it 
because it is too good to be true. And that's why when Paul was trying to describe Jesus coming to this earth and God giving us the gift of his son for salvation, he ran out of words and he said, oh, I don't even know how to awesome and correct. No, you know what? It's, it's indescribable. I can't even think of a word to describe it. And it's the offer that God holds out to you. But he's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. So at the end of the day, it's your choice. Now I want us to bow our heads and I want to just talk to you for a second. I mean, you got a choice today, many of you. You can go to heaven. You can experience life, peace, and purpose now. But I will tell you this, by rejecting God's offer of salvation, uh, you're, you're choosing hell. And I'm not, I'm not telling you that to scare you because I grew up that way. That's not my point. But I do want you to understand what's at stake. Yeah, you might live 70, 80, maybe 100 years, but you're going to live somewhere for all eternity. That's your future. What are you going to do? And if you're here this weekend and you're like, Mike, I get it now. I understand what's at stake now. I want to lead you in a prayer, and I'm just saying, if, if you pray this prayer in your heart, if it comes from your heart to God, God will hear it. It tells us in the New Testament that if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. If you get to that point where you say, God, I get it. It's not about my efforts. It's not about my good works. It's not about what I'm trying to do. It's about what you've done for me, and I accept that gift. If you pray this prayer, God will hear you, and immediately your sins are forgiven. You're reconciled back into a relationship with God, and your future is secure, and he is going to take you on an incredible, exhilarating journey as you follow him. Just pray this prayer after me. Father, I believe that you are the great promise keeper. And as you kept your promise to David, I believe that you will keep your promise to me. And I believe that you will forgive me. And I believe that you will accept me. And regardless of what I've done, I believe that you will love me. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis of what I have or haven't done. Instead, I will approach you boldly because of what you've done for me. Through Christ Jesus, my Savior, and my peace. If you pray that prayer from your heart, God will hear you. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for this reminder of your grace in our lives. Thank you for the reminder that it's not about what we've done for you, but it's all about what you've done for us. And Father, I pray that we would learn to live in your grace and your mercy and forgiveness. And Father, I pray that it would characterize our relationships with each other. Thank you, Father, for those today who have made that decision to accept your free gift of salvation and to follow your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for who you are and what you're doing in our lives and the unbelievable, unconditional love you have for us. In your name we pray, amen.